Welcome to episode 28 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent, Darren Mott. And in this episode, we'll discuss operations, fast link and site down with former FBI supervisory special agent, Shane Berry, the current group vice president for asset protection for Abercrombie and Fitch. So before I get to Shane, we're going to talk about a couple cases we worked together in the mid-2000s that had to do with intellectual property rights stuff, and we'll kind of talk about how the cyber threat has targeted the retail community, because that's kind of his speciality now. But before I get to him, I want to touch base on a on a quick news item that's somewhat, it's not, I want to say it's somewhat unique, but it's not one you see every day, and this has to do with malware attacking Apple products. This one specifically attacks the M1 Mac, which is the new... MacBook Pro, MacBook uh, computers that have the M1 chip, which makes them very fast, very effective, and and very powerful. Well, there was a particular type of malware called Silver Sparrow that they had found had infected 30,000 Mac devices across the world, and researchers were confused by this particular piece of malware because they weren't sure what it did. So I'm going to read an article uh, from Tech Radar. Uh, the author of the article was Mayanik Sharma. And so basically this article came out today and it has to do with Apple thinks they've solved this particular malware problem. So if you have an M1 laptop, you can you kind of rest assured you're probably okay. But essentially the article states that Apple has moved to squash the threat of another new malware strain threatening its own brand M1 Mac silicon devices. The malware dubbed Silver Sparrow by researchers at security firm Red Canary was thought to have infected nearly 30,000 Apple M1 Macs as well as targeting some earlier Intel-powered Macs as well. However, Apple says it's now stepped in, telling TechRadar Pro to revoke certificates for developer accounts used by the malware's creators to help deliver the malware packages onto victim devices. One thing this article doesn't talk about exactly is, is how these particular machines got infected. Could have been drive-by, um, drive-by browsing on web pages. Could have been an email service. Uh, I haven't seen where they've really said what that is. If I have, I apologize. If you if, if you're you're sitting there thinking, yeah, they have. They said it in this article. Well, I apologize. I missed that particular article. But essentially, by reducing or by removing the developer certificates, it, the bad guys can't continue to work on what this malware does. But um, the it was flagged as novel for the way that it used JavaScript for execution, something that companies said it hadn't previously encountered in other Mac OS malware. And this really is the point. A lot of people think if I buy an Apple product, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it because Apple's are superior products to Windows-based devices or Linux-based devices. And that is really not true. They all run on some kind of computer code that has vulnerabilities that bad guys can figure out how to modify or how to exploit, rather. So all this to be said, if you have an Apple product, it is key, just like any other product, to make sure you update that product periodically and frequently. So if Mac comes out with a patch, uh, let's say I'm using Big Sur, I'm currently, if I look at my the computer in front of me here and I look at my uh, particular Mac, I have Big Sur version 11.2.1. If I look at software update, it says that... And I'll tell you what it says when it pops up. I probably should have done this before I started talking. But it says my Mac is up to date. So I have the current patched version of Mac OS Big Sur. If you do that on your Mac and it says there is an update, you should run that update because chances are 
Apple has determined there's a problem that they're trying to fix. Sometimes it's simply performance-based patching, which just makes the computer run better, and it's okay to to patch for those. Uh, But if you get a particular patch update that says there's a security vulnerability they're fixing, you definitely want to update that machine. And this is true for Apple, Windows, Linux, whatever operating system you're using, because you want to plug whatever hole it is, because the bad guys are figuring out how to utilize those vulnerabilities. Every time a software maker comes out with a patch that tells the bad guys we found a vulnerability because they know that a lot of people around the world do not do automatic updates. They don't patch regularly. Businesses don't patch regularly. It's certainly a problem across the board. And so bad guys figure out how to use those vulnerabilities and exploit them until they get patched. So all this to be said, make sure you patch your patch your devices, do the updates as needed. This is, is inclusive for your internet of things devices your smart speakers, your smart TVs, you should keep them updated. Now, of course, there's always the risk, and you can argue that, well, sometimes when I do an update, it bricks my machine. Certainly certainly a risk, um, but it's a minimal risk. You don't, it's not like you see a lot of news articles that say Windows released an update and everybody's computer stopped working. You may have to you know, get with tech support if it screws up your machine, but maybe there was some other conflict with some other hardware or software that's causing that particular issue. So, you know, obviously, it's up to you. You have to determine what your risk tolerance is and whether you want to wait and update right when the update comes out or wait to see what happens because sometimes um, they will release an update and then they'll come back the next day and say, hold off doing that update. So the problem you get into is it creates a vulnerability on your machine that is at risk. But if you are practicing safe and good cybersecurity hygiene, chances are those vulnerabilities will be hard to exploit if you're doing simple things like being aware of what you're clicking and opening within emails, if you have multi-factor authentication turned on, if you have good passwords, all the same things we talk about all the time. Because again, if you're sick of me saying it, you can probably repeat it with me, that the majority of intrusions into computer networks or computers occur through email. Again, not all of them, but you know, over 90%. So that's where the big vulnerability is. Be smart and safe in your email browsing, your email hygiene. And again, use that multi-factor authentication, have complex passwords, and you're going to reduce your risk pretty much overall. All right, with that, let me welcome to the podcast the the one of the one of the like top five people I always wanted to have on this podcast. My friend Shane Barry, he is the group vice president for asset protection for Abercrombie and Fitch, a a company who I always mispronounce their name. I can't. It's like a it's like a <laughs> thing but okay. Shane welcome to the show thank you very much Darren I appreciate it happy to be here sure so so Shane I go way back to when did we first start communicating like 2002 2003 somewhere in there yeah definitely uh, early 2000s right before yeah. you were supervisor you were you and I were case agents on similar exactly. type cases which we'll, we'll kind of get into as we go forward so um and you are currently in lovely Ohio what's how many how many how many inches of snow you got uh, well, we, it's starting to burn off today, finally, but they, we, we were in the neighborhood of 10 inches or so. Um, not as bad as when I was in Connecticut, but certainly worse than when I was living in Florida. Right. So. Okay. So with that, let's talk a little bit about your FBI career. What were you doing before you became an agent and what made you decide to become one? Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a law enforcement family. My dad was a cop. Um, our family dog was a working canine. Um, my brother was in law enforcement. My uncle was in law enforcement. Um, and so it was just kind of a natural, uh, thing. And, but they had always said to me, 
if you're going to get in law enforcement, don't do local. Local is uh, local law enforcement. I have a ton of respect for those folks. It's a tough job. And um, they're like, you should absolutely try to get federal if you can. Retirement's better. The job conditions are are not as severe. Um, uh, and so, so it, 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 that was kind of the aspiration. It was largely by uh, by by the motivation of my family. Um, and and so, uh, you know, went to college, studied sociology, specialized in criminology, criminal justice. Was really interested in deviance and why people do bad things. And one of the few people who I think actually used that degree for something in the field. Um, and then, and then, yeah, um, joined the Florida Department of Law Enforcement after I got out of college, started by doing fingerprints and, and lots of things that are kind of like uh, behind the scenes law enforcement. And I uh, worked my way into an agent trainee position that ultimately uh, got me to the bureau down the road. Um, so that, that, that's, that's really kind of the, the, the basics of it. So what new agent class were you? 9904. 9904. So I remember uh, reporting, I think, on January 3rd of 1999. Yep. Um, uh, my, my, I remember actually quite clearly, um, my wife was pregnant with my first son at the time. And uh, she still reminds me that I left her pregnant to go and join the FBI. So not a good way to start, but yeah, 9904. Yep, you were 30 weeks ahead of me. I was 9919, the last the last class of the millennium, I like to say. Yeah, um, there. that's awesome, yeah. So, um, I think they went into a freeze shortly after 99, if, I, if memory, memory serves. So 99 was not a full year, mm, um, right. but, um, but and then it, then it kind of slowed down even after we got done. Yeah. So where'd your career take you? So first office, what'd you do there? Where'd you end up? How'd yeah. you end up at a cyber squad? Were you on a cyber squad? I guess that's an industry because in 2000, well, yeah, 2000 or uh, so you, yeah, you would have ended up, you would have ended up in 99 in your first office. There were no cyber squads. Yeah. Well, and that, and that, and that exactly right. That's, that's part of the story. Uh, because there was no cyber crime at the time. And I, I can't remember the name of what the units were that they had um, cyber people who some were agents and some were civilians. National Infrastructure Protection Center. Yes. So they had these and we had one in New Haven. But really all they were there for was to help uh, knuckle dragger agents like me get evidence off of computers that we seized in you know drug cases. So they weren't it wasn't cyber didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was assigned to the New Haven uh, office in Connecticut and the Meriden Resident Agency, and I was originally assigned to do healthcare fraud. But uh, by the time I got there, there was an agent on a violent crime gang task force who said, "I don't want to do this anymore. I would rather be um, healthcare fraud and make the new guy go up and do the gang and, and drugs." So that's what happened. I got assigned to a gang task force in Hartford, Connecticut straight out of the academy, which was okay. I don't, I don't, you know, it wasn't my favorite thing in the world to do. Um, and uh, did that for several years. Um, quite a few uh, wiretap cases, doing heroin cases and gang cases. Um, and, and, and was waiting for my turn to get back to the Meriden RA when the SAC approached me and said, Shane, I'd like to talk to you about doing this cyber stuff. And the reason why, Darren, at the time was New Haven was one of the case agent offices for uh, one of the, the original um, card credit, credit card fraud cases out of, out, out of Russia. Um, and you could go and look it up. But uh, the Seattle office actually lured a couple of Russian, uh, I say kids. Invita. But, uh, Invita uh, 18 case? 18-year-olds. What's that? But that wasn't the Invita case, was it? It was. Okay. It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what happened was is that um, they, they ran that case – 
uh, part of that case out of New Haven because a couple of the companies that had been attacked, uh, CD Universe and a couple of other ones, were, were based in Connecticut. So, like, this was one of the original, man. Like, this is mm-hmm, one yeah. of the original cases. And and still to this day, I mean, uh, groundbreaking for a whole bunch of reasons, not, not the least of which is extraterritorial. Correct. Uh, yes. there's, there's several FBI agents uh, who are persona non grata in Russia, and they don't want to travel there on vacation. There are a couple <laughs> agents that I know very well who would, will never go to Russia. Yeah. Um, they were ultimately indicted by their whatever the equivalent is. They were they were charged in Russia. But a fascinating case. Long story short is, is I end up, and they, they had the, the agents that were working that case were due to retire, and they didn't have anybody to take over the cleanup process, uh, which included the working of the the, the bad guys. The sort they became um, sources uh, after the fact, and I ended up working one of them. So that was kind of my introduction uh, was credit card fraud like directly with one of the original Russian hackers on the Invita case. So mm-hmm. um, fascinating stuff. Uh, you could write a book on that case alone. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, by the way. I had no exposure. Whatsoever. Nobody did back then. Nobody did. Nobody did. It was fascinating stuff. And, uh, so when, once that case wrapped, uh, I took my seat doing cyber, and which cyber at the time was really, honestly, you know, I did a lot of um, innocent image images cases. Um, you know, there were a few uh, hacking kind of cases, but but it, you know, it, it, in, in, the, in the vein that you uh, became such a leader in cyber uh, did not exist at the time. So, but that's how I got involved in it. That also included IPR, um, intellectual property rights, and um, and that's you know the, the rest is history. Really, we started kicking the tires on an old uh, IPR case that the uh, Connecticut uh, U.S. attorney was doing uh, called uh, Buccaneer, which you may be familiar with. Um, yep, that was a, that was a working customs, IPR. Yeah, Buccaneer was a customs case. It was the big one at the exactly. time in 2002, I think. So they did their big takedown. Exactly. Yep. exactly. So the timing, you're starting to um, – I was three or four years on the job. Um, they came to me and said, hey, are you interested in continuing to work the – pieces of buccaneer customs and said we've got we've had enough uh, we, we don't you know we've we've done enough and buccaneer is obviously a huge case i think it was really kind of the first uh optical disc piracy wares case um that that ever happened uh in the federal government and so uh that was the uh that was the lineage uh that led to uh me getting involved in ipr was just kind of picking up some of the pieces from the trailblazing case that the customs authorities did. And did you, so from off a of Buccaneer, so you, so yeah. So in the early 2000s, obviously DOJ and the FBI made intellectual property. It's a priority within the cyber arena. And you kind of talked about yes. how you got involved in that. So your case was higher education. So, yes. So talk about, well, yes. talk about, two, let's talk about first. For, let's, so first tell me how you predicated and then how'd you come up with the name? Because that's not naming. We talked about naming yeah. before this and it's always an entertaining rationale. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Um, yeah, so from a predication standpoint, it was literally, um, you know, we, we, we had a U.S. attorney um, at the time uh, in, in, um, in uh, Connecticut, Mark Califano, who, if you ever want to read a fascinating story, Mark, I think now is running uh, programs for American Express or something along those lines. But his dad was 
um, uh, was a very famous, he, he was, I believe, uh, within the Department of Justice in the Kennedy administration. Um, anyway, I worked with Mark Califano up in, and Sean Chen up in Connecticut, and they were the ones who had worked Buccaneer. They were working through CSIPs at the time, which was a computer crime and intellectual property section for DOJ. Um, I mean, a, a guy by the name of prosecutor by the name of Ken Dorsho, who uh, I would I would I would become fast friends with. Ken, uh, love Ken Dorsho. He's now um, out in the private sector, I believe, or he may be running um, software industry uh, anti piracy uh, uh, programs. Anyway, they came to me and said, Shane, are you in, are you interested in taking this source that we have and continuing to run with these wares cases? And I'm like, don't know anything about it, but happy to hear more. They explained to me kind of buccaneer, and I'm like, sure, I'll do this. I had an analyst at the time, Mark Warner, who I love as well, and Mark was super excited about it. So me and Mark, a lot of the older agents didn't understand what it was and kind of poo-pooed it. Um, but Mark and I were like, let's see if we can make anything out of this. Um, and so we, we ended up um, having a source who was one of the one of the hosts or one of the servers, um, and one was one of the admins on one of the where servers. Uh, and we were able to uh, work him to kind of get into a couple of wares organizations. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, the rest is kind of history. The reason why we called it higher education, unless you want to know more about medication, you can always follow yeah, up. That's fine. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the reason why we, we first of all, and, and I know it sounds silly now, um, you, you'll be able to tell everybody the same thing. Like either they give you a name for the operation or you come up with a name and we wanted to come up with our own name. We didn't want to have one assigned to us by headquarters. Um, and, you know, you only get a name once the, once the operation becomes a major investigation, right? So this case had been combined with several other cases, but at my, my offshoot, my case was called operation higher education. Two reasons. One was nobody in the world really had enough bandwidth to run these huge ass servers mm-hmm. um, at the time, because it was so much, uh, information in these wares cases moving across bandwidth that, that the vast majority of these servers were housed in universities and in places that had really fat bandwidth. So that number one, higher education, operation, higher education. And these were cyber people. They were really smart. These were like really, really brilliant people. They were more educated than a lot of the people that I was used to dealing with. So they were more, more highly educated than a lot of it. So that was the logic behind higher education. I caught a lot of crap over that. People didn't like the name, um, but that's the reason why we called it higher education. Was your source, um, was he, had he been arrested in Buccaneer and agreed to participate or was he someone they identified didn't necessarily, because in my case, so my source on mine um, was not, it was, he they never did a search warrant. He happened to be, he happened to be connected to a group that they did a search warrant in Charlotte, the Chicago office. And yep. so they had some time in between their flight leaving to go find this other guy who they didn't have enough evidence on, but they knew he was part of it. They knew he lived in Charlotte. So they went to his house, thought that the roommate was him at first, freaked <laughs> the roommate out. And then he came out and said, I think you're looking for me. And then they, they got talking and they, he said, Hey, I'm happy to help out. You know, I'm always interested in, I mean, he, he wasn't being arrested. They just want to know what does he know? And so that's kind of yeah. how mine started. Was yours that way, or was he was he in trouble no, and needed he, help? Yeah, he was a cooperating witness. He, so, gotcha. he had he had a he had a little more motivation, perhaps. He, he had lots of motivation. Yes, so sir. I guess the advantage to yours is you didn't have to pay yours, did you? I'm sorry, say that again. You didn't have to pay yours, did you? Nope. Yeah. See, nope. mine made a ton of money over four yeah. over five years. Yeah. Now there, there was there was no money, and this this was literally people trying to avoid going to prison. Yeah, um, which which is powerful motivation. Um, 
and 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 this the, you know he had I think he I don't think he was directly involved in Buccaneer. I think he was one of the post Buccaneer cases right. uh, in that in that kind of uh, lineage. So the group uh, he was that. the group he was part of. What was what was their claim? Were they software um, distributors, movie games? Yeah. What was their gig? Yeah, I think at the time, you know, the 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 the, the real the real motivation was around games. So games were a big part of it. Everybody wanted to be uh, zero day uh, games, and, and 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 frankly, there were still some pre-release games happening. Although pre-release games got you in a lot more trouble, uh, that that always attracted more attention. Um, zero day were perceived to not as have as much impact. From an IPR effect standpoint, so they really focused on zero day, um, but um, they were doing software as well. Uh, they were diversified yeah, uh, sure. in their product offerings. Um, the reason why this this group got in so much trouble, Darren, was is they were uh, there was a couple of bad guys. In addition to obviously breaking security on some really expensive CAD programs and and, and a, you know hundred thousand dollar CAD programs that that they were breaking security on and the games, obviously um, the games before they were ever literally being sold on shelves in the stores. Um, but, but the, the reason why they, they were uh, targeted was because they had a couple of guys, even though it was against the rules uh, within these groups that were selling slots on the servers. So, mm. you know, they were allowing people who were pressing actual optical discs and selling them CDs and selling them, they were they were allowing them to have access by paying for slots is what they called it and that's a huge no no um, because you know that that's the quickest way to get law enforcement interest is, is when people are selling access and this guy um, which he was in Singapore was was downloading and and was making like they were involved in the more organized aspects of right of of, of um, this world a lot of times as you know Darren these wares groups. They were just racing for, you know, bona fides, right? They wanted to be the first one. And the yep. groups that were renowned for being able to get things cracked immediately developed reputation. I mean, these guys weren't like, you know, criminals in a classic sense. So it was really kind of a weird environment. But once you, once you started selling access to the site, yeah, because uh, they weren't because they weren't they the, the groups themselves. This is a this is a hard thing to wrap yourself around if you're if you weren't involved in it. They weren't they had no monetary motivation to do what they did. It was just they, their reputation. They could say, Hey, I'm the one who cracked our group cracked windows 95. Yay for us. And exactly. every, everybody exactly. who has a copy of windows 95 is using our copy. Cause in the, in the where's world at the time, you didn't, if someone released windows 95, you didn't release another version. You really, yeah. that was, and, one. And that was all part of the, that was all part of the, um, the operating, you know, uh, uh, the operation of these groups. It's like this entire, subculture that most people don't know about um they, yeah they, they, they weren't really making money it was but they were still breaking protection on things and making it widely available so that you didn't have to pay for it but then they would they would affix artwork at the at the at the launch uh of these things just a, like a tag like a like a like a graffiti tag to let everybody know that yes this was this was a fair light um yep um, uh, 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 operation and it was really about, uh, but, but, but unfortunately um, for the reasons that I previously mentioned, they ended up becoming the catalyst for people to massively reproduce these things, whether or not right. they were directly involved or not. They knew that there were 
repercussions to what they were doing. And they knew that it was illegal what they were doing. But these weren't like classic criminal bad guys. They weren't. Right. It was all about there's this protection. I, you know, am super well known around the world because I'm really good at breaking protections. There's not a protection on a disc that I can't break. Right. But you get that guy to be part of your group. But the the breaking of the protection is a crime in itself. Without a doubt. The DCMA. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, when we went and targeted these guys, you know, you had a couple of different levels. You had it was like it was like a criminal organization sure. in its in its construct. Um, but the people that were um, cracking were obviously the, the most desired targets and, and supplying, uh, particularly if that supplier was, say, for example, which we had a writer for a magazine. Mm. If they were like writing for Wired magazine, they were given a pre-release copy to review to drum to drum up PR and. They would that that supplier who belonged to a wares group would take that disc and upload it to the server, and that now seven days, fourteen days before it's released. So, so we were we were really targeting, and I don't know if you you felt the same, but it was the suppliers and the crackers to me that were the most, you know, egregious. They they were they knew what they were doing was wrong. The people who were running the boxes, yeah. Maybe they were stealing services from a university or something else, but they weren't as sinister to me. The packagers, the people who do the artwork, yeah. there were all these different roles. They, they weren't, they, you know, they weren't super sophisticated criminals that were making right. a crap ton of money. They were just, you know, right. they were stealing intellectual property. And this was really a difficult argument to make because a lot of people would look at it and say, well, are they really, are they really bad guys? Like who's losing money here? Right. Uh, it's really interesting genre uh, frankly well fortunately on our on our end the business software alliance was a great partner because they could say we're yeah. losing six billion dollars a year in all of this pirated material yeah. yeah so and, and that's how we would ultimately do it right is, is yeah. if you got access to one of these where servers you know they, they did keep stats in there typically about how many times right. something had been downloaded yeah we yeah. could tell the date that like was probably not very smart but um they, they you know but but that was part of that bona fides right that was part of the the, the street cred that, you know, you had X number of titles, you know, if you had, you know, thousands and thousands of titles and you're, you know, had this much bandwidth on your box and you had this many people who were, you know, who had access and this many downloads that were happening, that was all part of the, the pumping up of, uh, of their, of their uh, credentials. So, um, you know, yeah, you, you can quantify ultimately that, uh, you know, 10,000 downloads of this, you know, $5,000, you know, program and the numbers got astronomical i mean the the value of the software on these boxes alone were in the many millions and the downloads were well beyond that mm-hmm. was uh so was your case an undercover or was it just you were getting information from the cooperating witness and using the information with logins and things like that from his box for your evidence and it was a little bit of both um at some point you know he was doing he was doing some a uh, direct engagement it wasn't just getting us information. He was doing direct engagement. So I would spend literally, I remember laying on the couch there and getting home after I put my kid to bed and spending four hours reviewing chat logs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all I looked at was chat logs, looking for little nuggets of admissions or, you know, whatever it was. So there was a lot of that manual elbow grease. And you're talking about like there must've been 10 IRC chat channels that, that, that were being used by these guys religiously. And just a, just a lot of, a lot of chat review. Um, but then we also built a server at one point and got it introduced into the organization. 
um, we, <laughs> that's a really funny story. We, you know, at the time we had a, that, that, that infrastructure, um, national infrastructure protection group that worked with us, helped me build a three terabyte server, which was pretty huge at the time. Sure. Um, now, hold, okay, let me ask a quick, a quick question on that. What year, yeah, yeah. what year did you build that server? That, that was in 2003, maybe early 2004. So you might have had, you had 250 gig hard drives. Did you have 250 gig hard drives to use? And the reason I ask is my first my first undercover server was a terabyte, which was great, but it was it was 10 hundred meg drives because that was the best I could buy at the time was was hundred meg drives or hundred hundred gig drives hundred gig drives sorry exactly exactly the same thing I think we had a stack of like 10 250 meg drives yeah. like it's amazing this thing didn't catch on fire <laughs> but but I remember the the tech guys being so excited. They cut the side of the box out and put a plexiglass in and put a chipset that glowed. Uh-huh. And like we were more excited about the whole, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like uh, yeah, this was like you know geek porn at the time, right? Um, but the fun part about that was is we were scared to death that like we didn't have any place to put this. We found a broom closet in uh, the Chicago Mercantile, and but we were scared to ship it out there. So we got the bureau to allow us to fly on one of the bureau's um, private jets. And we flew it out to Chicago, and we installed it in a broom closet in the Chicago Mercantile. <laughs> and uh, then we ended up giving access to everybody to load stuff to it. That's funny. Did you, did you work with Justin Cullenbrander out there? Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. Justin was um, – and I haven't talked to Justin in a while, but that's when I met Justin was yeah. uh, he, helped, he helped me get that organized in Chicago. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, because I had gone out there, and they had I had a subject that was out there. And so we went and interviewed him and flipped him. And he was in the Mercantile Exchange too. And I think Interesting. it might have been that might have been what led to your setting your stuff out there was because we had this guy who was in the Mercantile Exchange, and then you were looking to do that, and they were looking to use him to create what would become their undercover. Uh, what yep. does it call it? Jolly Roger. I think there's was Jolly I Roger was. I think it was Jolly Roger. Yeah, because it was the pirate offshoot. It was the Buccaneer offshoot. Right, right, yeah. right. Yep, and they were. They were part of were they part of Fastlink and we'll get to this in a minute, but Fastlink Fastlink and Sight. So Fastlink and Sight down were the major so in the FBI you have you have operations, you have operations of similar nature. You can combine them to do law enforcement actions to take everything down at once. And so so that got it. So so you had higher education. I had sudden urge. WFO had a music case, I believe. That yeah, I can't remember. There was Chromance and there was another I can't remember theirs was I can't remember what the name of theirs. And I think Chicago's Jolly Roger was the fourth yep. one that became Major Case One Seventy Seven. Do I have the number right? That, that sounds about right. I, yeah. Operation and we Operation Fastlink. Now I don't think either one of us came up with that name because you weren't at headquarters I, yet. Oh, you no, did? No, no, no. I came up with Fastlink. Okay, all right. I had, Darren, I had caught at the time. Um, yeah, I had caught so much crap over higher education <laughs> that that we spent way too much time sitting at our desks, me and Mark Warner, thinking of. Uh, what 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 to come up with for that? And so I I do I I as much as I have to admit that I was responsible for higher education, I'm taking credit for Fastlane. Okay, and if you was I don't know if you were like this. So my biggest problem with my case for the first up until Fastlink was, you know, until 2002 there was no cyber division. So for the right. first year and a half of my case, my program management ran between criminal division to counterterrorism division, back to criminal division, back to counterterrorism. Yep. I, I keep, yep. I kept getting different programming. I never had anybody in control. And then 2002 cyber division comes along and they create, fortunately for us, the intellectual property rights unit. 
Yep. And so it gave That's us exactly program right. managers. And the only reason they came up with that unit, I think, was because it was a because these cases became priorities. Correct. Yeah. So at the time, there was a lot of industry pressure on the mm-hmm. bureau, and there wasn't enough resource and sophistication at the state and local level. And these cases were extremely diffuse, right? So in our case, uh, which ultimately became FastLink, I think we ultimately um, did 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 search warrants simultaneously in twelve different countries. Really, there, there's no way for anybody but the federal government to coordinate those kinds of right. uh, those kinds of initiatives. And so, I think the bureau, coupled with the pressure that was coming from the Software Industry Association and the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIA was a very powerful lobby at the time. Um, that, that that ultimately, I do think that that was that was kind of probably the catalyst for the IPR unit, which we all uh, eventually became affiliated with. Uh, yeah, right. And so, so talk about FastLink. You came up with the idea. Who yep. asked you to come up with the name? Was it um, was anybody at headquarters, or how was the? Remember, it all came together. But I, I, I'm a little hazy on how that that part came together. I honestly don't remember exactly. I remember saying to myself, uh, "Hey, I was starting to make contact with a lot of folks like you and." And, and Justin and other case agents, and we and we knew that um, we would we would get more support and resources by combining the cases. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like you mentioned earlier, getting the major case designation allowed us to get funding and supplies and things that our our our, our specific um, field offices and RAs that, that they didn't have. Right? right. So we we there there were enough us, uh, and, and frankly, the bureau. Uh, likes to combine them so that they can aggregate resources around these cases because otherwise it's very difficult to kind of simultaneously manage these cases. And there were there were enough correlations, enough corollaries between these cases, certainly from a uh, from an investigative standpoint and then from an execution in terms of takedown standpoint. And we also knew, Darren, that that if I went and took mine down, it was going to screw your case. Right, and if right, you right. took yours down, yep. it was going to screw Justin's. And because and, and, and we noticed this on the day that we took it down, you know, they knew the minute that somebody came in the door on our hacker in Northern Ireland, they knew something was up. Yep. It was like that instantaneous. And that was the reason why these things had to be coordinated. Um, it wasn't about having case names or, you know, like, hey, I've got a major case. No, it was because literally operationally, these were very, very high risk. And nobody really understood that. You did one search warrant, the whole thing was done. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, oh. you're right. We're, so your targets, how many targets do you end up with from your case? Oh, geez. I think we did on that. I can't remember specifically. I want to say 27. And, um, and none of them were kids, right? They're all adults, correct? All adults. Yep. Yeah, there were a few college students that were involved in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, you know, I would say that the mean age was somewhere in the 23, 24, 25 range, something like that. Um there were some older folks too. I mean, like there's a lot of people who like uh, who love this scene. They just like being part of something, and seems fairly benign. And we had thirty and forty year olds as well, but the vast majority of them were, you know, in that twenty five ish range for me. Yeah, but I know I had twenty domestic search warrants and three Canadian search warrants. That was my extent into the international part was in Canada, but and then Chicago had some, WFO had some. WFOs was an RII RIAA related case, if I remember correct. I don't remember the name of it, but so FastLink yeah. was in April of 20, 2004, right? Yeah, four yeah. four four twenty one. Four twenty one. I remember April twenty first. Nice. Um, 
and I want to say in total across all the operations, we did 100 search warrants at the right. same time on the same day in yep. 12 different countries. And at the time, wow. it was the largest takedown of any organ. We, we, we eclipsed Buccaneer, if I remember correctly. Yes, sir. And it wasn't just about that, but I mean, no. we truly were we truly were trying to dismantle or or, or, or address um, the most significant players, uh, at least that our investigation had revealed, the most significant players uh, in these organizations. And that meant, I mean, literally, um, you know, a university in Hungary and a, and a, and a cracker in Northern Ireland and, um, you know, a packager in Israel and uh, you know, that was the, that was the facet. Really, we, we you know we we ended up bringing all these people together with multilateral cooperation to simultaneously at the you know I think it was nine o'clock in the morning, so we could get the majority of the people internationally. It wasn't too late, mm-hmm. um, and it was six o'clock in the morning on the west coast of the United States. But they executed at the exact same moment. It was in you know the coordination on this thing was was unbelievable. And I remember it. Uh, we had to bring everybody who was in the bureau who was going to be doing search warrants to to the um, the big meeting room in the SIOC at FBI headquarters to brief all of our cases, saying, "Here's what we are, and here's here's who we're targeting, here's how we're doing it." Yep. Yeah, and we did the same thing internationally. We brought every single one of the international organizations together at a meeting in the Hague. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to the United States Embassy, and all of these investigators. I mean, like literally, I can't remember them all, but we had we had we had. Um, a ton of investigators from around the world who flew into the Hague and we all met in a, in a, in a, in a, in a meeting room at the U S embassy there. So like, it, you know, uh, the coordination on it was, uh, I, I, I frankly believe pretty unprecedented. And so then, so we do all that. It's, it's, it's reasonably successful. I mean, there's a lot of stuff taken offline it, it, I, like the drug trade yeah. doesn't kill it, but it certainly makes yeah. everybody freaked out because at the, to keep in mind at the time, I don't know if it was for you, but they didn't have a lot of good operational security. They were logging in straight, yeah. straight from their home, home computers with made identification yeah. nice and easy. Yeah. So then, uh, yeah, I, yep, go ahead. I, 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 you know, I think that's one of the things that I struggled with after the fact is, is like, it did feel almost like the drug trade. I think it's a great analogy is that, you know, did we really have an impact on it? I mean, the scene changed after Buccaneer um, and Fastlink. I do think that the scene changed to your point. They changed from, I think Tor became, um, you know, like they started doing things operationally in order to mitigate that risk. Um, and it became harder uh, for authorities to investigate those cases. Um, but I also think it required the software and the gaming companies to implement um, more, 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 more restrictive security on there. So I think it, it, it changed the nature of the industry, these cases that we did. But I, I don't know, prosecuting these people, most of them got no time. Some of them got a few months Year and a day. of time that was suspended, a few fines, like you know, these weren't like, right. you know, huge yeah. cases in that regard. I know that, I don't know about yours, but the ones that I got, pro- that I prosecuted at least from the Fastlink perspective, because my, because we're going to talk about site down in a minute, but I was able to continue on with my source for another year after this. So my case right. carried on, but the ones that we ended up prosecuting, the, they, most of them pled guilty to conspiracy. So they got a year, yes. and a, a year and a day. That was pretty, and a part of that is DOJ's lack of experience in prosecuting these cases, not knowing how to prosecute them and taking the easiest route out, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, and and, and the U S attorney's office would tell you this. I mean, like, you know, they they want cases that are winnable and with the volume of cases that they're dealing with, you know, to, to process these through as quickly as possible, obviously they're going to 
you know, be a little bit more lenient with regards to sentences. Um, so yeah, it's all about volume and pace. It's it's in winnability. Those are the right. things that are that are the most important and and how they manage these things. Well, and the funny thing, even after we did this in two thousand four, the scene didn't change enough because we were able to do it again a year later. But at this yeah. point, you were at headquarters. So how did you get to headquarters? Yeah. So um, at, at the, actually, uh, largely based upon. Um, th- this this investigation, uh, what happened was CSIPS at the time, I mentioned them earlier, the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section, had um, had petitioned uh, uh, John Ashcroft at the time uh, and the Department of Justice to place a, a law enforcement officer in CSIPS. So they wanted to get better in terms of understanding the investigation and how these things would operate from an investigatory standpoint. Um, and so they, 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 and I thought it was a smart idea at the time was to combine uh, an FBI agent in the office with CSIP so they could work every single day. So um, there was, that was when they came up with that idea, they asked me if I wanted to do it. I had had a really good relationship with Mark, uh, excuse me, with Ken Dorisho at the time and had gotten to know Mike DeBose and Chris mm-hmm. O'Leary and some of the guys that were running CSIPs, like guys who were like literally at the vanguard of cyber cases prosecutorially. Um, and they asked me to do this. And so I did. Um, but at the same time, I had applied for a supervisory uh, job. My family, my, my wife's family lived in D.C. I was looking to get to D.C. It was my office of preference. Um, so I applied to this supervisory special agent job, got this DOJ job. Within a week, I got the SSA job within the IPR unit. So um, I had only been on the street for, you know, roughly five years or whatever it was. So not a lot of time mm-hmm. as a street agent. I had done seven years of, of law enforcement work with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement before the FBI. But I was still fairly young, but there wasn't a whole lot of people who knew cyber. So, so um, yeah, I ended up at, at headquarters as a SSA in the IPR unit. Yep. So so then so you get there. You're so FastLink has occurred. You're at headquarters now. So you're in, so you're a manager. You're overseeing all of these or, operations. Um, yep. And so we were, I, I just looked up, I did a quick, quick public uh, information search on site, site down and Fastlink and Chicago was part of site down, not fat, not fast. Like I forget who the yeah, fourth, that makes more sense yeah, so yeah. I forget that who the fourth, sense. fourth, or it might've just been you, me and uh, Charlotte, New Haven and WFO, but I could have sworn there was a fourth one and I cannot remember who that is. But anyway, who does No, I, I think that that's probably right. Like Darren, and as I think about the timing of it, that's right. The, the extension, so we did FastLink. FastLink was mostly that undercover work with the existing servers. Right. Site down for me um, and for us in New Haven became that, that where we built that server and took it to the next level and tried yeah. to run the undercover server right. uh, in the Chicago. So, yeah, that was the second phase. Yeah, and I think Chicago us. and San Jose did similar things because I remember talking to the case yeah. agent in San Jose because they called me and said, hey, how are you doing that undercover? So I kind of told her how we did it, and they did it, and theirs was movie-focused because they had the MPAA. Yeah out there for yep, them. And a, so theirs was, theirs yep. was movie focused. Um, yep, and then Chicago, exactly right. and that, it, it, you're helping the job in memory. Yes. Here, and, yeah. <laughs> and Chicago had, I think they had a little bit of everything, but the same thing, they had that, that particular individual who we'd identified became a source and helped them create a server. So I think we did all that. Yeah, that's so, right. That's so right. the Sierra yep. headquarters, um, you, you're aware these cases are going on. Um, yep. Do you immediately start thinking we need to do another one of these in a year? What's the, what's the mindset there? What, what's, what's your plan? Cause you're now, or you're overseeing this. And basically let's be honest, yeah. the, unit, the unit chief probably wasn't overly experienced in cyber either. She was a nice enough lady, uh, but probably not the, yes. not, not the, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't programming ones and zeros, needless to say. <laughs> so, For sure. so you're, so you're saying, okay, so you're, yeah, their success. You, it's a lot easier to repeat success. 
Um, you yep. know what I got going on in Charlotte? You kept sending me money, which was nice because for like three years, the Charlotte field office had the best cyber budget of any office in the, in the country <laughs> simply because of, because of my case, which was awesome. But anyway, so, uh, so what, what do you think? And, and what are you and doing? Honestly, Darren, that's how, you know, between meeting people during FastLink, higher education and FastLink, and, uh, I, once I got to headquarters, I felt like I could be the person who, that helped us when we were trying to get our um, fastlane case together. And I knew all of you um, out there. There were, it was really kind of a clubby kind of thing because it was a finite number of people who were doing this, but I knew I was getting those same kind of inquiries. I knew that I had a number of these cases occurring across the United States. I was working with CSIPs. CSIPs CSIPs wanted to try to consolidate these things. I knew that I could have more of an impact at, at the headquarters uh, from a funding standpoint, from an organization standpoint, if we could get these things combined again. And, and, and the same thing with FastLink. I knew that by by organizing th- these things as a major investigation that we could get things coordinated and we didn't have a whole bunch of folks just running around and doing these cases and, and mucking up cases for each other. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, um, it's exactly your point. We knew there was a blueprint at this point for how these cases mm-hmm. were were working fairly well. I knew these cases were coming in. I saw them happening and, and we felt like we could get them organized for the same reasons that we did past night. And so, so we should step back because this is my favorite yeah. story that you and I have, because I remember <laughs> this, this occurring site down was not the original major case name that we wanted to use. Yes. Yes. I, I think, I think Darren, it was your idea to use dev null, uh, which you can explain the uh, cyber significance of that term dev null. Um, <laughs> But um, but but everybody at home office had no idea what it meant, and uh, and so we had to come up with we had to dumb it down a little bit because uh, um, cyber capacity was still building at the headquarters. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that brings me to a different, an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it. It just kind of came to me while we we're talking. So if you're at headquarters, I had an undercover. San Jose had an undercover. Mine was a group two. I'm sure theirs was a group two as, as well because we didn't really have the, the circumstance to make it a group one back then. Because back then, yes, yes. no one knew how to do cyber undercovers. They didn't give a crap. I mean, I was case yes. agent, undercover agent, all that crap, whatever. I, yes, can, I couldn't do what I did. What I did then, there was no way I could do now. But anyway, so you had to take this to the Curoc every six months to get approval. How confused yes. were those people? Just, I mean, like, honestly, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I mean, really cyber at the time was – um, was about evidence recovery. It wasn't about like, like all this stuff was extremely new and there was an entire generation. In fact, that's the reason why I ultimately got hired away from the FBI um, because somebody who knew somebody was asking for help on IPR and my section chief came to me and he's like, find me an agent that is about to retire that knows IPR. And there weren't any. So, <laughs> yeah. so Two weeks later, he came back and he's like, did you find me a name? And I'm like, no, there are none. They're all younger agents like me and Darren and Justin. And um, that's just a matter of fact. Like uh, uh, most of the senior agents were, you know, at the time, you have to remember, we were post 9-11 as well, right? So the entire mission of the FBI was changing. And and we were isolated. You know, from a cyber standpoint, it was really about, you know, Terrorism. It was like the entire bureau was shifting at the time. And so, you know, it was really just kind of this young, small group. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of names out there, the, the, the Scott Augenbaums and everybody else who, um, 
we, we, it was just kind of this fledgling group of young agents and, and there weren't a lot of older agents that, that knew anything about these. So yeah, the Kirok was the Kirok and even my unit chief was like, yep, sounds great. You guys keep plugging away. <laughs> right. And we should, <laughs> we, we should, we should step back a second and mention the Kirok is the undercover review board, essentially that yes. it, it's in, it is made up of section chiefs of different sections of different divisions within the FBI who approve undercover operations. So you go in uh, every six months, they every month they have a Kurok to look at the undercovers that need to be approved to continue on. And yep. I, I did this when I went up there to headquarters. If you had a cyber case, they would look at you and say, yeah, like, just like you said, sounds great to us. Keep it up. Keep it up. You're killing it. it it's funny. The cyber was made up of smart people. I mean, some people that I worked with there with, whether it be, you know, Pete Brass and Dave Thomas and Janet Monroe and John Ion Relly and, um, you know, you know, Stu, Stu, Stu Roberts. There's a lot of people up there who are really smart, but the vast majority of them were seasoned agents who had been working things other than cyber in their career. So we were we were really just trying to figure it out. Then we we're just trying to right. figure it all out. So site down rolls around. We do the same thing we did with Fastlink. It's another major case, three op- operations. We end up doing search warrants in a bunch of different. I mine had seven different countries and other twenty people that we did search warrants for. It's again, yep. it's, it's another successful one. Again, it. Same. It's basically we repeated exactly what we did the year before. There wasn't a lot of difference exactly. to it, other than they became a lot more operational security focused after that one. Um, yeah. But then, so then, like you mentioned, so so your section chief comes and I need an IPR guy. Yeah. This is what leaves leaves you to leave the FBI. How does that? So you've got you've, you've touched on a little bit. When did you make the decision? When they said who you got for me, you said Ah Shane Barry. I think is who I got for you. Yeah, it was it was funny because he came to me and he said give me a name. Two weeks later, he came back and he said, well, did you give me a name? And I said, no. And he goes, well, I think you should look at it. Um, I'm going to give him your name. I have to give him a name. And um, I wasn't looking at the time. I was happy. You know, I was, I was, I felt like I was making a, a pretty good career for myself and the bureau is a great, great place, particularly for street agents and the folks who are out there and, and doing the job every day. Um, I loved it. But um, you know, you also know that at some point, and you, you had to experience this, Darren, if you're going to progress in a bureau, there's a lot of moving. Mm-hmm. You, you move for 18 months, and then you have to move back to headquarters for 18 months. And then you go back out in the field for 18 months, and then you go back to headquarters for 18 months. And I had young kids, and at the time at headquarters, I was leaving at 530 and coming home at 8 o'clock with the commute. That was my choice, pick, pick the bad place to live. But I wasn't seeing my, my son. So there were a number of personal factors that contributed to it, but they came to me. They, he wanted to give my name. They did. I flew, did an interview, just thought I would check it out. Um, and for a variety of personal reasons, um, stability being one of them, um, you know, it became an attractive opportunity um, to, to grow some roots. And as much as I love being in the Bureau, and I still love it to this day and love the relationships like you that I made, um, you know, I ended up, I, I think, making the decision primarily because I was okay um, just being a dad, I sure. was okay with that. And, and the private industry allowed me to be more of a dad than I, than I probably would get, would get to be move, moving around with the bureau. Plus you now got to see the cyber threat from a different perspective. So you've been doing yes, it sir. for almost 16 years now. How, what is, so what was it like when you got there and how has it changed over time? Yeah, I think, you know, cyber was, um, you know, we didn't even really have an online presence at the time. So, Cyber was hardly even um, uh, mentioned. And, and in fact, I think we, we had one or two guys who did it as a side moonlighting part of their IT job. So there was IT guys. And, and basically all it was was teaching discipline around password security, 
and uh, you know, basic personal security and safety kinds of things in terms of operating. Um, and, and to a lesser degree, I think this was about the time when the APT and the Advanced Persistent Threats became well known. And then we were, we were worried about intellectual property uh, control. Like we didn't want the competitors knowing our secrets. So there was those kinds of things happening. But but that's obviously evolved considerably um, in the time. And, you know, now the company's obviously much more concerned about things like uh, malware and, uh, and DDoS attacks and account takeover and, um, and, and, and frankly, the, um, the compromise of personal, uh, personally identifiable information, whether it be social security numbers or of, of, of employees or credit cards that belong to our customers that are being stored, stored in loyalty accounts. And, and the rule, you know, it's, it's changed so much. And, you know, companies, every company, I think, you know, they face thousands of attacks a day. A lot of times they're, they're kids that are just trying to find open holes in your system and they're not really uh, sinister or damaging, but there's a lot of international um, sophisticated attacks that are happening against companies and we have a fully uh, formed and involved and extremely talented InfoSec department that does that now. I don't have responsibility for it, but that has evolved and changed a ton in the nearly 16 years that I've been there. So what do you think is, if you had to guess, so you've been, you know, you're, you're one of the cyber trailblazers in the Bureau. Where do you see cyber going over the next, let's say, you know, let's give it a five-year five year break. Is it going to be the criminal threats you think are most important to companies, both private and public sector, the nation state actors, or is it going to be a blending of those two together? Yeah, I think it's probably a blend. I mean, I think, you know, when I talk to folks about cyber, the nation state stuff is scary. I don't think you know, people like you have a lot more insight into that uh, than even I do. But I think it's the it's it's the nation state actors and, and, and the vaccine for COVID. Let's let's make it contemporary is a perfect example. We just learned last week that North Korea, I think, tried to break into Johnson and Johnson to to steal. Like I think it's that kind of cyber since everything is out there uh, in, in in the in the virtual universe. I think it's that kind of stuff that scares me. And 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 then when you start talking about whether or not they have access to uh, power grids or other kinds of critical infra- infrastructure that, that, you know, does warfare evolve from a battlefield to, to online and, and, w- and what kind of risks does that create? Um, but, but, you know, from a company standpoint, it's all about competitive advantage. Um, and you want to protect your, uh, your customers, obviously, but, but how, how are people cutting corners on years and years and years of, of development. And we may only be talking about jeans and t-shirts for me, but you know, there's thousands of people who work all day long on new ideas and, 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 and things that give us a competitive advantage. And the thought that somebody could break in and steal that from us is, you know, is scary. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's probably a blend. I think that there are criminal bad actors who are going to continue to try to compromise and you know, ransomware is obviously a big deal right now. Companies are being held hostage um, in deciding whether or not they're going to pay on these things or face uh, having their systems disrupted or um, damaged. And then, and then there's that nation state that, that I think in the bigger picture probably worries me more as a, as a citizen, uh, as, it does, as, as it does a security practitioner or professional, the, that those other problems are, are more, more a problem above. Uh, so um, probably a blend of both, Darren. 
All right. Well, Shane, I greatly appreciate your time. It's been fun going down memory lane with Fastlink yeah. and Sight Down and all that stuff. I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Like I said, I've been trying to get you on for a couple of months. I'm glad we could finally make it work. Um, and hopefully, maybe in the future, we'll have you on again to discuss something else because uh, I'm lots always of, looking for good fun, guests. Darren. Good luck with the podcast, and I appreciate the time. Thanks. Have a good one. That'll do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I want to thank Shane Barry again for coming on and talking. Uh, it's a great discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions for me or, or comments on future shows, feel free to email me at darren at thecyberguy.com. I try to respond to every email I get as quickly as I get them. So hopefully, um, if you have, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, if any of my previous podcasts, I mentioned stuff that I can email you, uh, feel free to hit me up and I'll send those out as quickly as I can. I'll try to do another midweek quick um, podcast later this week if there's some news items of interest. Otherwise, we will meet up again next week for the regular long interview form version of this email. You can download the Cyber Guy podcast at all your favorite podcast outlets, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, so on and so forth. Remember, as you go through your week, remember that knowledge is protection. And if you understand the threats that are targeting you assess your risk and proceed wisely you should be safe online thanks again for listening enjoy the rest of your week